And um, I am looking forward to this next season that we are moving into um, as we're kind of coming out of all of this and it's starting to feel, things are beginning to feel more normal um, and we're, we're going to be able to spread out and do some more things. And I'm happy to see you here. Um, and because it's, it, it's been kind of difficult at times, isn't it? Some of you are going back to work now and you were working at home and it's like, I don't want to go back to work. I want to stay at home and work. And same with church. Um, I, you know, I do still get some texts. Hey, we're catching online today. You know, I'm just going to relive the pandemic. We're going to catch it online today. But, um, I'm thankful that you're here with us. Last week, we talked about the quaking Aspen Grove in Utah, where an entire forest is one single organism. Um, today I'm going to be sharing with you, and some of you already know this because I've had a conversation with you, that trees talk to each other. And how does that relate to how we ourselves grow as Christians? So that's where we're going to be. I'm going to be jumping around in a few different uh, places in Scripture today, but you can follow along on version if you would like. Um, we've been talking about being rooted. What does it mean to grow deep and to live strong? And we've looked at a number of different ways in which that uh, happens. But we are moving intentionally towards understanding what it means to grow, what it means to endure at times, and how do we do that together as a community. The, the Aspen Grove taught us that the church can, is like a community in which we have a lot of similarities and what we may see on the surface as different individuals, we are all one body in Christ. We have one Lord, one Savior. There is one baptism. We have a singular calling as people, even if we express that and work that out in different ways. It's really a uh, a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church, but it's sometimes hard for us to see it that way simply because we don't live our lives this way. We are a very individualistic people. Like I do my thing, you do your thing. If our things come in proximity to each other, we might do them in proximity to each other, but we are in incredibly individual people. Um, but the, the Aspen Grove just shows us we can be one thing, we can have uniqueness, and yet still be the body of Christ. Today I want to talk about um, why some people grow and some people don't. But really more uh, to the point than that is how do we grow? How are we supposed to grow? as Christians. And some of the assumptions that we've had that we grew up in church and some of the things we've even done here are not the most effective ways for us to actually grow in our faith. A fulfilled Christian is a growing Christian, not a perfect Christian, not a I've arrived Christian, not I've memorized the entire Bible Christian. Although I would say if you are a Christian who is growing and have memorized your entire Bible, you're probably a highly satisfied Christian. But it's a growing Christian that brings fulfillment within our lives. When we begin to feel stagnant or stale or stuck, which is where a lot of people feel, then we no longer feel like this is a fulfilling part of our lives. We may be, feel discouraged. We may want to give up. But what does it look like for us to grow? And why do some people grow and some people don't? Why we see a lot right now of very prolific, well-known believers who are deconstructing their faith, which means they're walking away from faith and saying, yeah, I don't believe this stuff anymore. You know, why is that happening? But more importantly for us, how do we do this together and how do we move forward? I want to share with you... Um, it's not an idea. It's now a scientific certified fact. It was an idea not too long ago that have you have you ever wondered 
how trees who are starting out in a deeply covered forest are able to grow. Somebody tell me, what do trees need to grow? Somebody shout it out. Sunlight, what else? Water, what else? Uh, We're going deep. Soil, carbon dioxide. I don't know who said that. Carbon dioxide, that's the one I was wondering. Am I going to say it? You have to have all these things for trees to grow. But have you ever wondered how these little trees on the forest floor that the whole canopy is covered and is perpetually in shade, how do they grow? I mean, eventually, well, tenacity, actually is part of it, how a tree grows. We're not going to go into this today. Trees have to do certain things to grow, and sometimes trees make bad choices. For example, trees that, that take up too much water out of the soil don't last. I, there's, there are a number of things that a tree has to be really balanced in order for it to thrive. But, you know, old trees do eventually die. We, there is a tree we could, we're, we're not going to talk about, we could, I, I think I, miss, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, um, called the bristlecone pine, is purportedly the oldest tree, singular tree and uh, you could say the aspen grove is because it's technically a singular tree. But the oldest living singular tree that we know of is the bristlecone, bristlecone pine, which is in the Middle East and is, and is thought to be over 5,000 years old, which means, uh, you know, even back, depending on how you understand timelines and un- how you understand um, biblical history, you know, just think of all the things that tree has been alive for. And all the way back from not just the time of Jesus, but 3,000 years before the time of Jesus. So that's the oldest living tree. How does it get there? Trees don't live forever. And if these old trees take up all the sunlight, how do the young trees come up to replace them? Well, interestingly enough, trees help each other. Not only do they help each other, one particular forester and author made the audacious claim years ago that trees actually talk to each other. And he would be laughed out of every journal and every place he would give a talk. His name is Peter Walhaden. Walhaden, that's not right. Peter Wallaben. Peter Wallaben. I think I have a picture of Peter. Peter Wallaben began saying trees talk to each other. And people didn't believe him for years until a few scientific discoveries later, and scientists began to listen. In fact, he wrote a book called The Hidden Life of Trees, and to this day has sold over two million copies. He talks about how they communicate, how they warn each other if there's a predator. And I'm not exactly sure what a tree can do when a predator comes. Like, I don't know if it can somehow express, you know, pheromones or or leak sap or something it can't get up and walk away but you know it but trees can warn each other like if it's being attacked by a bug it will send a signal to the other trees and other plants around and say something bad is happening little trees can grow under huge canopies because they get nutrients from older trees and it's really fascinating how that happens when a tree dies there's a network under the under the soil underground that at, will actually take the decaying tree's nutrients and pass it to trees that are alive. Now you may be thinking, if you're not familiar with this, that sounds absolutely bizarre. It's called the mycorrhizal network 
Others call it the mycelial network. And do we have any Star Trek Discovery fans in the room? Okay. Um, one that's willing to admit it. Uh, the whole premise of the spore drive in Star Trek Discovery that they can travel the universe in the mycelial network is that there's a network of spores and fungi spread out throughout the universe that you can tap into and a spaceship can travel anywhere in the universe. Now that's not real. That doesn't actually exist. But the, the whole idea that they created this from is the mycorrhizal network. Now, mycorrhizal fungi is a fungus that grows and all over the world, underground, will actually connect the roots of different trees, of different species, and different plants together. And instead of me trying to explain this to you, BBC did a short little video on how this works and how trees talk to each other. I want you to watch this, and it is fascinating. Oh, next one. Trees may look like solitary individuals, but the grounds beneath our feet tells a different story. Trees are secretly talking, trading, and waging war on one another. They do this using a network of fungi that grow around and inside their roots. The fungi provide the trees with nutrients, and in return, they receive sugars. But scientists have found this connection runs far deeper than first thought. By plugging into the fungal network, trees can share resources with each other. The system has been nicknamed the Wood Wide Web. Wood Wide Web, that was original. It's thought that older trees, fondly known as mother trees, use this fungal network to supply shaded seedlings with sugars, giving them a better chance of survival. Those trees that are sick or dying may dump their resources into the network which might then be used by healthier neighbors. Plants also use fungi to send messages to one another. If they're attacked, they can release chemical signals through their roots, which can warn their neighbors to raise their defenses. But like our internet, the wood wide web has its dark side too. Some orchids hack the system to steal resources from nearby trees. And other species, like the black walnut, spread toxic chemicals through the network to sabotage their rivals. Arboreal cybercrime aside, scientists are still debating why plants seem to behave in such an altruistic way. The hidden network creates a thriving community between individuals. When you're next in woodland, you might like to think of trees as part of a big superorganism, chatting and swapping information and food under your feet. So this is a real thing that is happening under our feet all over the world, which I love. I've told you before, one of the things that just confirms my faith and my belief in God as the creator is just how incredibly complex and creative the creation is. The fact that God has orchestrated this, that plant life can have this network to help each other and at times apparently hurt each other it's just fascinating to me. But what I want to kind of focus in on today is the idea of, I don't know if you've caught that, young saplings, how they grow in a well-shaded area. Because photosynthesis requires sunlight for a tree to be able to take carbon dioxide and water and create glucose. That glucose spreads throughout the trunk of the tree down into the roots. And interestingly, this fungi grows by leaching some of that glucose and at other times passing that glucose then on to neighboring 
plants, including young saplings who cannot yet get sunlight. They don't need to have photosynthesis because they are receiving glucose from the older, taller trees that are stretching high above the forest and getting the sunlight and making the glucose. It's fascinating. And as we go through and look at scripture, we find that this very idea is shared many times in the way we are to help someone grow in their faith. Now, I will tell you that if you're coming from kind of a uh, a traditional church background, which was, is my background. Um, typically, when we talk about growing, growing is uh, broken down into the areas of attending worship and programs and reading your Bible occasionally and praying occasionally. And we have all these things that are supposed to go into growing. Usually, because we're such an individualistic culture, is very individualized. We will seek out a place based on, do I think these programs meet my needs? But this idea of a network of people helping each other is the idea that is espoused in Scripture. So we're going to go through this, and we're going to look through um, a couple of Scriptures that just talk about this. But I want you to be listening for not only how do we grow, but how am I growing? Am I growing? There are a couple of really key things uh, on how that looks and how we uh, do that. The Old Testament talks about raising a person up in faith. And while the Old Testament is talking about raising someone up in the law, and we're talking about raising someone up in faith in Christ, the way people learn is the same, and God's instruction then is the same to us. This is how you learn. This is how you grow. This is how you practice these things, and they Take root deep within you. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today, he's talking about the law and the instructions that Moses is giving them. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, everywhere you go and everybody you talk to, you are practicing your faith together. You are sharing and you are talking. And interestingly, the way that it's being described here is not from the perspective of the receiver, but the res- from the perspective of the teacher. You shall go out and teach these things. And you shall do this when you go to the market, or when you go on vacation, or when you go to work, or when you go play. You are to do this wherever you go. Not that we schedule just these moments every now and again that we do this. This is a way of life that we are constantly teaching. Now some of you may be sitting here thinking, yes, I I get that, but I am no teacher we will get there in just a moment. Proverbs 22.6 talks about just raising children up and says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How does that work? It's the same idea that Scripture espouses for how we teach and how we grow. This is supposed to be such an integral part in the way that we live our lives that when we jump to the New Testament, Jesus and Paul actually give some really stern warnings to make sure that whatever you are teaching is the right thing. 
and not the wrong thing. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great milestone or millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Paul was talking about how the Pharisees were teaching and drawing people and raising up new believers. And he had some harsh words for them. He said, well, this was Jesus, actually. Woe to you, Paul, we'll get to Paul in a minute. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In other words, you're leading people in the wrong direction because you yourself are headed in the wrong direction. Now, why am I reading these to you? I'm reading these to you because I believe the primary way you and I are supposed to grow is not individually with the Bible in your room by yourself. I will say, I don't think you can grow if you don't have time individually with your Bible in the room by yourself. I don't think you can grow because that's where we often take in the majority of the teachings of Scripture. And then as we go out, we practice them. But instead, the way Jesus talks about it and the way Jesus demonstrates this with his own disciples is more a process of those who know caring for those who don't. The idea of a large, tall tree reaching up high into the heavens, getting the sunlight, being able to make the glucose and pass it down to those who are not. A relationship between the mature and the not yet mature. Between those who have seen a few things and for those who haven't seen much of anything yet. For those who can say, I've been there, I've done that, and this is what it looks like. Those who say, I have no idea what I'm doing. So you can. The Bible is so rich and is so powerful that an individual who has nothing but a Bible and no other believers around them can come to faith in Christ and can grow deep in their relationship with Christ. Scripture is profound and it is deep the fact that most people never actually read the whole bible is more indicative of our lack of a commitment to learning it than it is the power of the bible to actually change and move us but the idea of how do we teach the idea in scripture is that those who know bring along those who don't. Paul got really upset with the church in Corinth, and he said, you know what, by now you should be teaching this to other people, but you have become so dull in your learning and in your understanding that you still need somebody to give you just the most basic of principles, but you should be teaching by now. And interestingly, Paul's not just talking to the teachers, he's talking to everyone who's in the church. Now Jesus gives us a paradigm for what this is supposed to look like. And rather than Jesus creating programs for people and making sure that he's with everyone, Jesus had his inner core. How many were in his inner core? Somebody say it. Shout it out. How many were in Jesus' inner 
three outside of the three, 12 outside of the 12. We have, we have places where he talks about the 50, the 70, the thousands. But we see for Jesus, for the most part, it's the 12. And then within the 12, he does kind of have his top three that he's investing in. Jesus, when things really got serious, he would take his 12 and he would go away. Not everybody. Now, there were times he had everybody. But when we really need to have a conversation, Jesus was like, I'm taking, my, I'm taking the 12 that I am investing in. This is the paradigm that we see throughout Scripture of what it means for a person to grow. And I believe it's one of the reasons so many people today feel stuck. Some of the last words of Jesus when he was about to ascend to heaven has come to be known as the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus taught his disciples to make other disciples, not converts. This is where we sometimes struggle in the church. This is, I, I came up in a system, maybe you came up in a system in which the emphasis was on the convert. It was the revival message that says you're going to hell unless accept Jesus and we would convert them to Christianity and maybe we would get them to come to church and then it was kind of up to them from that point. And that's why so many people come in and then they walk away is because they haven't found what Jesus is talking about. And we actually come and we're making disciples. It's really it's really an important way for us to understand moving forward and it's not unlike parents teaching your kids to ride a bike how many of you have taught someone how to ride a bike now if we do if we do this to teach our kid to ride a bike let's go to youtube.com here you go there's your bike come get me when you're done <laughs> how many of you have taught that way i mean i'm not going to say i've never taught that way but i mean how many taught your kids how to ride a bike that way of course not I remember when we were teaching our kids to ride a bike, we, like, as long as we've had kids, well, not as long, we, when our kids were very, very, very young, we lived in a house in a neighborhood that was 100% flat. And that's where you want to learn to ride a bike, right? Where it's absolutely flat. But soon after, when the kids were still very young, too young to ride anything on just two wheels, we moved to a neighborhood that we were on a hill, a steep, long hill, the kind of hill that you love it when it snows, but you hate it every other time. It was a steep hill. The neighborhood we're in now, while it's not as steep, still, for the most part, we are still on a hill, and it actually is pretty steep, and it is very rolling. It is hard to learn to ride a bike. But when we were at our last house, we decided we've got to teach these kids. I mean, there are some things that you're just like, you've got to teach your kids. You've got to teach them to swim. You got to teach them to ride a bike. I mean, you just got to teach them these things. We're entering into the swimming for Malia, and some days she's excited as can be, and other days she's like, "I'm not doing it." I, she she'll say it. I'm not doing it. I am not learning to swim. Oh yes, you are. Anyways, okay, I digress. But we decide we've got to teach these kids how to ride a bike. 
So the first thing we had to do is we had to go buy some bikes, right? We had to have bikes. And not only did they have to have a bike, mom and dad had to have a bike. Because you present a bike to a kid and say, go for it. It's not going to end well. It's going to end very bloody and lots of tears. And the bike is going to be put away and say, I will never touch that again. You've got to show them. So we would get on the bikes and we would ride. But in addition to that, there are times that you fall. And so our role was to come over and pick them up and say, it's going to be okay. Get back on the bike. No, I'm not getting on the bike. Yeah, it's going to be okay. I'm right here. Come on. Get back on the bike. Now, we happened to be up the hill or down the hill. We were up the hill. Down the hill was a school that had a little nice hill that went down into this long flat field. And so we took them down there and we began putting them on the bike. And as they get to the top of the hill, we would just kind of let them coast down. They didn't have to pedal. They didn't have to do anything. And it was grass. Most of it was grass. So if they fell, it wasn't as bad as falling on concrete. Sometimes they would fall and it would hurt and they would cry. And we would say, let's do it again. No, I don't want to do it again. Yeah, you've got to do it again. You've got to do it again. Come on, I'm going to do it too. As they started to get it, we then had to start taking them to other places because, hey, you just rode your bike down a five-foot gentle slope. Here, why don't you take it out of our driveway and go down a, you know, quarter-mile descent to your death? Okay, go have fun with that. Um, so we had to go take them places to ride their bikes, and we got a uh, a bike rack, which when you have six people in your family, we only had five when we did this, but when you got five people and you got five bikes, you got to get somewhere. It's tough. We started taking them places. We would go camping. We would bring their bikes and they would get to ride their bikes. One time we decided, let's go ride around Cades Cove. I mean, they can ride, uh, you know, about 200 feet. Let's go do the loop around Cades Cove. It'll be great. And I'm going to tell you, it wasn't all that great, but we did it. And all the kids survived, though there were moments we weren't sure that was going to happen. But we'd take them different places. And there was a season of our life that we did a lot of bike riding. We discovered Enterprise South, which is where I made the video this week talking about the network of trees. That was the Enterprise South at the Nature Trail, which has been closed and is now open. We actually I have a picture. This is us with some family members where we went. This is Enterprise South. That's our bike rack on the back. And those are my uh, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, and nephews, and then our family. And we would go riding around Enterprise South. So we would take them places and let them practice. You know, there's a lot of similarities in teaching someone to ride a bike as is teaching someone how to follow Jesus. Now, we can call this relationship different things, but... A number of years ago, some of the leadership here, we got together and we just did kind of an exhaustive study of how do people learn and how should we do this as a church moving forward. And we came up with a simple conclusion, two simple conclusions. Simple conclusion number one was mentorship is the most effective way to lead somebody to follow Jesus. We see it over and over and over in scripture. And the second realization we came to is most people will never commit to that. Because this is where life on life happens. And sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it's ugly, and sometimes it's painful. 
But as we look through scripture, whether you're learning a new trade, whether you're learning to ride a bike, whether you're learning how to endure in a young marriage, you need someone to show you who's been there before. Someone who's up getting the sunlight and passing down all the good stuff to those who don't yet even know how to get to the good stuff. Mentorship is the way of discipleship in Scripture. And these are, these are in your notes if you are following along on version. This is so important. Mentors are so important in your life. I have had so many different mentors within my life. They know the way because they've been there before. Now, when I grew up, my, my dad, he, he didn't work on cars. He would always take them and have somebody else work on them. And Deidre and I started off and got married. Like, we, we didn't have any money for anything. <laughs> and so when it was time to change the oil, like, we couldn't afford to pay somebody to change the oil. And we never changed the oil at mom and dad's. And, but dad was a very successful dentist, and I was a seminary student. <laughs> and Deidre was a teacher. She was a high school teacher. We didn't have any money. And so my brother-in-law, my sister's husband... He and I did a lot of life together, and we worked at a camp together, and he taught me the most basic principles of how to maintain a car. Now, today, if I were to take my car and ask him to change my oil, he'd be like, I have no idea how to do that, because he doesn't do it anymore either. But he taught me the very basics of how to take care of our car, and for the first several years of our marriage, and still occasionally today, I'll fix our cars, change the brakes, change the oil. The other day, I had to put a new alternator on my car, and I just couldn't stand to pay somebody else to do that. But I don't always have time to go do that. He mentored me in that. In seminary, I learned a trade, and I, do, I, I am capable. I don't know that you would ever want me to come do it at your house. I am capable of a number of handyman jobs around the house. And we've renovated a couple of houses, and uh, I've done a, a lot. I can fix a lot of things. My dad didn't do those things either. My brother-in-law taught me those things. He was a mentor for me. Now, two years after we started Journey, I entered into a new business with a friend. And I was learning the ropes of business. Now, my dad was a business owner. So my dad mentored me on how to own and run a business. And he told me the things he had learned. And these are the things, some of the invaluable lessons he taught me is, uh, don't use a collection agency. As a, as a believer in Christ, do not use a collection agency because it, it hampers your ability to have a healthy relationship. And what he found practically is between his experience in collecting accounts receivable and all of his friends who use collection agencies, he had a much higher return than they did. But he never pressured anybody. Dad had... Food he would bring home that he took in payment. Dad had some, uh, he had a gun he got. He still owns it. Still a gun. Somebody said, hey, I got a gun. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll take it. You know, whatever. I, as long as I get the other end of the gun, right? Uh, he taught me things like that. He taught me a number of things. I still go talk to my dad about, yeah, this is what's going on. He asked me how things are going with the business almost every time I talk with him. And we talk through all that stuff. He was a mentor for me. As a young believer, I had a youth pastor and a pastor who invested 
in me. I had friends who mentored me. Most importantly, I had a mom and a dad who we talked about faith in our house all the time. Similar to what we read in Deuteronomy. Wherever you go, talk about this stuff. They mentored me. Now, when I became a believer, I got serious about this stuff. So every morning and every night, I, I read two things. I read a chapter of the Bible, and I read whatever the daily devotion was. At the time, it was my utmost for his highest. I read that for years. Every morning, I would read that, and then at night, I would read some other scripture. And it helped me to learn how to... How or what scripture says, but it was those who had gone before me that showed me how to live it out. The mentors are valuable in our lives because they've been there before. The last person you want to, that you want to teach you how to change the oil in your car is someone who has never changed the oil in their car. That's the last person you want to teach you how to do that. Mentors have been there before. It's why it is a successful way to communicate trades you learn by watching. This is also one of the reasons that Scripture often holds up elders. Not elders in the position of the church, but those who have lived a lot of life. Because they've been there. They know a thing or two. And they can communicate to us what they've learned, and it helps us. Mentors also protect those who are young in their faith. They see that we're headed somewhere that we shouldn't go, and because they have built a mentoring relationship, which is generally a friendly, loving relationship, they say, whoa, 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 you need to stop. They do lives together. They watch us. They teach us. They establish a pattern of love and guidance, not judgment and strict, literal uh, legalism. They love and they guide that's what mentors do. One of the most important things mentors do is they help process what is happening in our lives. So even if I had watched my brother-in-law change the oil in a car, and then I go get my car, and he's nowhere to be found, I am undoubtedly going to run into problems. But if he's there when I'm doing it, and he says, whoa, 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 you're going to strip it, then he can help because he's walking with me and helping me process what is happening in that moment. Mentors encourage you to keep going when life gets hard, just like when our kids want to get off the bike and we say, listen, you got to do this. You got, you can do this. Or Malia, I don't want to put my face under. Yes, you can do this. You got to be able to put your face under. They encourage us when we want to stop because life gets hard. They celebrate with us when we get it. Like, man, high five. Way to go. You did it. I am convinced that one of the things that would help more people grow is if more people notice what they've done and celebrate with them and say, hey, high five, I saw that. Like dads showing up on Father's Day at church with their families. That should be celebrated. Mentors help you practice in different parts of your life. Once the kids got the small sloping hill, we had to take them to other places because they needed to practice their skill in different places if they were really going to learn it. When I was a kid, I, I lived on a flat street. I just, I'd be gone on my bike and I wouldn't be back till dark. They couldn't do that in our neighborhood. So we'd have to take them places, take them to campgrounds, take them to parks, take them to other people's houses to let them learn and to help them grow. 
Mentors help you practice in different parts of your life. They watch what's at work. They watch what's going on in your marriage. They watch what's going on with your kids at work or at school or any area of your life. They're there. They're a part of it, which individualism kills mentorship because we typically aren't that engaged with each other anymore. And now we're even less engaged than we were a year and a half ago because we haven't been able to engage with each other. They see they're a part. This is a beautiful part of being a follower of Jesus together. This is the body that comes together. And when Paul talks about the church, he says you all have different roles and parts, but you all create one thing together. Now, this is different from the modern discipleship paradigm where here's a program. Come and learn and leave until the next session. This is life on life, daily. What's going on? How can I help? When you, when you hit a road bump, when you see something and you begin to question God, who do you go to? Do you go to someone else who's questioning or do you go somewhere who's someone who's been there and they can guide and they can help? That's what we need in the body of Christ. We need people who have been there and say, I will do this with you. Let me help you. I believe that's where the future of the church has to be. If you don't have someone like this in your life, and most people don't, if you don't have someone like this in your life, I would encourage you to find someone who has done it before and seems to really get it. At times, you can just go up and ask them, hey, can I just spend some time with you? I have people that do that with me, and I do that with others. Can I just spend some time with you? Just talk through some stuff. I do that. I I have business mentors that I go to. Can we just talk about where I'm at? What I, what I should do differently. I have that in my faith. I have a number of people I go in my faith and I just say, hey, I just, this is where I'm at. What do you think? And I, I have people who have, are way farther down the road than me. And I have some that are just a little bit farther down the road from me. But I look to them to help me. This fall, we believe in this idea so much that we're going to be creating a new mentorship opportunity. And it's going to begin with some of you who have lived some life adopting some of our young folks, our kids, our youth, our our graduates. We're going to ask you to commit to one year to do life with these people. We have a, a book that will help you to read through and understand ways that you can help, how you can pray for them. And we're going to ask you for one year that will you keep up with them? Just ask them how they're doing. Maybe take them out to get them something to eat sometime. Call them up. Talk to them when you're at church. Build a relationship so that if they're struggling with something, they can come talk to you. Because we all need somebody, especially if we have kids, we need somebody else besides mom and dad investing in them. We're going to kick that off this fall. And I'm going to ask adults if you're ready, and I hope that everyone is ready, to be honest, to start doing that. The fear that happens around the idea of this is that I don't know what to say. I don't know what to teach. You don't understand my background. Like, I need help. And I have found that you it is impossible to really grow deep in your faith unless you have two relationships in your life outside of Jesus. <laughs> You need to have somebody you're learning from. If you don't have somebody that's watching you, that knows you, and I don't mean the persona you put out, I mean they know you. 
It can be hard for you to grow because they can help guide you. But the second person is someone that you're investing in. Because if you want to think that you know something, until you try to teach it to somebody else, you don't realize whether you know it or not. It's when we then have to teach something that we think we know that we realize, I don't understand this as much as I thought I did. You need both of those relationships within your life if you're going to grow. I heard, or it's been said by many, in this regard, in many regards, that imperfect action is better than perfect inaction. Imperfect action is better than perfect inaction. Even if you mess up, it's better than not doing anything at all. And you can, you can take this and apply it in many ways within your life, right? Except maybe Bruce and Kathleen may tell us that's not good in the nuclear world. <laughs> perfect action is really necessary there. There are many places you can do that. Here's what I leave you with. When we grow together, we grow deep and we live strong. When we are lacking and we have someone who's been there before to come alongside of us and feed us when we can't feed ourselves, we can grow even when the environment is hostile to us. Today, we can grow in our faith even when the headlines talk about how messed up the church is. We can still grow because we have people who have been through this before. And they can help us to process and help us to understand. It does not take away our individual need to study and to pray and to have spiritual disciplines and rhythms in our own lives that we are committed to. But those only go so far. Jesus had his 12. Within those 12, he had his three. We need to do life more intentionally with each other so that we can grow stronger together. Would you pray with me? Father, I know that you have brought up many in this room, those who may be watching online, that they have something to, to add to somebody's life because they've been through some stuff. They've learned a few things. Maybe they haven't learned everything, but they've learned something that can be passed along. And God, we are struggling. We are struggling with the idea that I've just got to take care of me. And it has been so compounded throughout this year and a half. I just got to take care of me. But that is not your plan for us. I pray that you will begin the supernatural weaving together of our lives. That we let people in. That we pursue relationships with other people. I pray that you would help us to learn in the way you want us to learn. And that we would make disciples, not converts. It would not just be about learning Bible verses, but how, does it, how do you actually live walking with Christ, listening to Christ, and experiencing Him in His everyday, in our everyday lives? Help us to learn this. Father, help us to grow. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'm our closing song tonight, this morning. There they come. Um, if you're interested in this mentorship program we're talking about, I think 
it will be invaluable, invaluable to our students, our kids. You all have a lot to add to each other's lives. You'll hear more about it. If you're interested in that, I would love to hear from you. And I'm betting most parents would fully welcome it in their family's life as well. All right?